The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 306. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page, at Brian McClanahan. And, of course, subscribe to my YouTube page, where you can watch this podcast, at Brian McClanahan. You'll find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook and a free audiobook, Forgotten Founders. The audiobook is read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com, where it's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do so, 10 Myths of American History. You can click on that class, you enroll, and you get the, you're enrolled in the academy, and you get the class. So it's a great way to do it. Just go to mclanahanacademy.com. You'll see that 10 Myths of American History among the classes. But I also have several other classes available for purchase. So if you want to support the show and get something awesome out of it as well, you can get a class at McClanahan Academy. You can also go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can get your book plates there if you want my autograph on one of my books. You can go to LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, history.com, LearnTrueHistory.com, my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, another great educational website. And, of course, you can go to my webpage and click on that Shop tab at the top, at the top of the page, excuse me, and get all your Brian McClanahan Show logo apparel. You also got the Think Locally, Act Locally logo, which is really cool. Um, doesn't have my name on it. But we need to start this Think Locally, Act Locally revolution. We're already seeing it, and of course, this is going to be the theme of my show today. So I want to talk about that quite a bit. All right, so this is a listener-generated episode. Not just that. It's a Think Locally, Act Locally episode. So I've gotten a lot of email about various parts of the lockdown, um, whether it's my state constitution says this, uh, but the governor's doing this. I've gotten a lot of these, um, but I've also received uh, links to a couple of articles I want to focus on today, and it'll get into this, and I'll, and I'll talk about these state constitutions and where, that, where we go with that, because there is a problem. As I've said on this podcast several times, look, the states can do just about anything they want to do if it does not violate the state constitution. States have constitutions as well, and so if it doesn't violate the state constitution, the states can do these things. Now, clearly some of these lockdown protocols are violating state constitutions, and the economic and political results of these actions, in some ways, particularly the economic results, I think are going to be catastrophic. Uh, the state of Alabama has already come out and said, look, we have no more unemployment money. Uh, you have to go back to work because if we don't, there's no money. Uh, and how that's going to affect the future of Alabama, we're in April and they're already out of money for the entire year. There's no unemployment money. The rest of the money, of course, is funny money. We've monetized the debt. Uh, we've printed fiat currency. We've done all kinds of things to wreck the economy long term because of a virus. Now, it's not to say the virus isn't nasty, and I think people could have uh, done some of these things themselves without wrecking the entire economy. 
but that's a whole other situation. We'll, we'll talk about, if I can, in the, in the time that I have, I might have to make this two parts, but we'll certainly talk about the constitutional part of this at the state level. But I want to focus on two articles. One was from Quillette that was published back in March. The other uh, was just published recently at Bloomberg Opinion. And it's about what's going to happen to the United States in this current situation, or at least what people are thinking could happen to the United States. Now, I'm not so, let me, let me premise this by saying not enough people listen to this podcast for all these things to happen. You see, this would, these, these opinions, these, these visions of the future rely on an American public that has not been emasculated, rely on an American public that understands what political liberty and decentralization actually mean. Now, people that listen to this show of course, know those things. People that uh, are engaged, uh, say, at Lou Rockwell or at Abbeville Institute or Mises or you listen to Tom Woods or do these... Th- people know these things that listen to those shows or, you know, Ron Paul people. They know these things, okay? The average American doesn't care. The average American right now looks at this entire process that they've been on vacation for a time, and now they want to go back to work. People are getting restless. They want out. They don't want to be stuck at home anymore. They don't, particularly if the virus is more widespread than what people are suggesting. In fact, I've seen some data to suggest that upwards of 30 to 60 million people in the United States already have the virus. If you if you take the numbers and spread them out, and looking at uh, antibody resistance, that there are already millions of people in the United States with this virus, and the virus could have been here in November. Maybe even as late, I mean, as early as November, no, no later than December. And yet we didn't shut everything down until March, right? So the virus had months. Now, of course, the Trump administration has come out and they're going to close off all immigration in the United States. Just shut it down until we can get the handle on this thing and figure out what's going on. Now, that's not dealing with local issues. There's, there's other things going on here. And of course, because it's Trump, the left is going to resist that. Um, but you look at one of the big issues right now is oil is trading for negative per barrel. I mean, we're looking at uh, a situation where you have to, you're taking, you're, you're paying people to take your oil, right? So you got a barrel of oil. They're not paying you for it. You're saying, how much, you gonna, how much can I give you to take this barrel of oil? You know, gas has crashed. We're going to see gasoline get down under a dollar a gallon, which is a huge problem because we have a huge energy sector in the United States, and uh, that's collapsing, um, which has been fueling part of the economic growth of the United States, the energy sector, the oil shale sector. And, of course, the stimulus bill that the government passed had all these green thing, Green New Deal stuff in it. So they want to kill that industry anyways. Uh, but not just that. I mean, when you're not trading in oil because there's no commerce, I mean, that's the real problem. There's no economic activity going on in the United States whatsoever. People aren't driving anywhere. I mean, the, the, the funny meme was, I'm getting three weeks of the gallon right now on my vehicle. I mean, yes, these are major economic warning signs. And then you've monetized the debt and you've pumped in so much money. Now, right now, every other European country is doing about the same thing. So, because that's happening, I mean, you're, you're saying, okay, well, everyone else is doing it, so perhaps it won't crush everything. I'm not so certain. I mean, I don't know. We don't know. 
But what is this going to do to the United States and Europe and other places politically? How, is, how, how are these places going to respond to this politically is the question. And how are we going to respond to this long term? How is planning going to respond to the coronavirus? And look, the coronavirus is an infectious disease. We've had them. Other, I mean, look, we have the flu every single winter. Every single winter we have the flu, and people should be taking the flu more seriously than they do. Back in 2009, we had swine flu, uh, which was really nasty. And we had, a, I mean, tens of, not, I mean, I think, I think it was 600,000 people, something like that, died of swine flu. Maybe more. I can't remember the exact number, but astronomically higher than has died of coronavirus. And we have this every year, and the reason people don't panic about the flu is because, well, we know the flu. We, we have this term, the flu, we know it. But you start saying things like COVID-19 and people just go nuts because they don't know what it is. There is no herd immunity to the flu. When you get a bad flu, people die of the flu. I mean, people get complications from the flu. So perhaps we're looking at a situation where people are much more concerned about these type of infectious diseases, viruses, and other things that can cause all kinds of economic and social problems and political problems. I mean, most people recover from the flu, but a large number of people don't. And the same thing with coronavirus. Most people recover from coronavirus. Upwards of 90% of the people, probably actually about 99% of the people, recover from coronavirus, whereas 1% of the people don't, which is uh, high compared to the flu, but it might even be lower than, it might be less than 1% of the people die from coronavirus if you look at the number of people that actually have had it. So, I mean, we've shut down, we've, we've wrecked, we've destroyed the entire political economic uh, order of America for this. Now, what's going to replace it is the question. And I know I have people talking about secession. I'm not so certain Americans can pull off secession nowadays. I don't, I don't know if Americans could go through it. I just don't think they have the, the metal, the moxie to pull it off. But there is some discussion about decentralization. So I actually want to start with a piece by, it's a short piece, Tyler Cohen, who is an economics professor at George Mason, wrote this piece for Bloomberg. And then I wrote, I read it in, at uh, Yahoo Finance. He says, COVID-19 is not just changing Americans' daily lives. It may also transform their system of government. Well, that would be amazing if that happened. On many important current issues, the United States may end up with an arrangement that looks more like the Articles of Confederation than the Constitution. Well, here is a big question. Should we even have gotten the Constitution to begin with? I remember years ago when I wrote my Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution, some little dimwit um, on uh, social media was questioning if I really believed in the Constitution. When I said, no, I don't. There he is. I got you. You don't believe in the Constitution. You're a crazy radical. The Constitution was dead almost the second after it was ratified when you had the first Congress give us the Judiciary Act of 1789. It destroyed the Constitution, destroyed federalism at that point. So no, I don't think the Constitution was a good thing. I mean, you look at executive power, people say, well, there's no executive power. Well, there was executive power in the Articles of Confederation. If you want a... a, a deeper discussion of the articles, you can take my class on American constitutions at McClanahan Academy. I get into the articles. I talk about the articles and what it is and, and how it really wasn't that bad. I mean, look, Patrick Henry said it wasn't that bad. You, you had states, certain states with some economic difficulties, but not every state. 
Now, this is what you're seeing now. Consider how this might evolve, Cohen continues. First, states and regions are recovering or not dramatic at dramatically different rates. The worst may be over for much of California and Washington State, but New York City, because of its density and reliance on the subway, may find the problem especially difficult to control. Louisiana is on the verge of catastrophe, while some other states, such as Virginia, are still not sure how bad it will be. In this context, COVID-19 is the top political, economic, and social issue. It's not simply about spending trillions of dollars or monetizing debt, which most Americans view as abstract issues, unfortunately so. The question is when and how to relax the current lockdowns, and the lockdown is the number one feature of just about everyone's life at the moment, even in states not officially or completely locked down. President Donald Trump appears to believe he has the authority to reopen the country and may do so as soon as next month. Whether or not that is wise, the federal government cannot reopen the country on its own. The actual shutdown orders come from governors, and it is governors who will have to lift them, perhaps acting in concert without the federal government. Furthermore, objective conditions will have to be sufficiently positive that people will in fact respond and head out to stores, restaurants, and other public spaces once again. That's the key. Are people going to do this on their own is the major question that we have. Are people going to go out on their own to these particular locations? Or are they going to continue to self-quarantine and lock down? Because people are running scared at this point. I think that people will. And I'll give you an example. Right now, on the Gulf of Mexico, rental properties are full. They are full to capacity. People have gone on vacation still for spring break, what would have been spring break or the end of the semester. People are still down in these rental properties and they are there and they have nothing to do. And once the restaurants open, which they are going to do very shortly in these areas, within a week, the beaches, the restaurants, these things are going to be open. Once they do that, people will flood to it. Just look at what happened in Florida when the governor opened the beaches again. They were packed. People are going to do this. They are going to get out in large numbers. So the real question is going to become with this, and this is an aside, and I'm going to finish this piece before the break because it's short. The real question is going to be, are states like Florida, Georgia, Tennessee, and South Carolina, which are easing restrictions right now, are they going to be the way forward? Is the South going to lead, or is it going to be a catastrophe in these states, and we see massive spike in cases and everything else, and we have we have a real problem in these areas, or is this, or are they going to prove this entire virus and the response to it was overblown from the beginning? Is that what is going to happen? I know in my own state, if you look at the numbers, half of the people that have the infection are either healthcare workers or in, re, or in retirement homes, or the healthcare workers in retirement homes. The retirement, the, the the retirement community and the healthcare workers are getting blasted by this virus because they're in close contact. And retirement communities, of course, people with low immune systems, anyways, and poor sanitation and other things, anyways. Typically, that's where you have some problems. As May begins, it seems highly likely that the states will be, will be reopening their own at their own paces and with their own sets of accompanying restrictions. With some places not reopening at all. There is likely to be further divergence at the city and county level. Let's say New York City having very different policies and practices than Utica or Rochester upstate. Such divergence in state policy is hardly new, but until now, states have typically had many policies in common on such broad issues as education and law enforcement and on narrow issues such as support for Medicaid. Now and suddenly, on the number one issue by far, the states will radically diverge. Hallelujah! 
Hence the idea that America is inching closer to what it was under the Articles of Confederation, which governed the U.S. from 1781 to 1789. The U.S. constitutional order has not changed in any explicit matter, but the issues on which the states are allowed to diverge have gone from being modest and relatively inconsequential to significant and meaningful, if not dominant. This divergence may create further pressures on federalism. In Rhode Island, for example, state police have sought to stop cars with New York State license plates at the border, hindering or delaying their entrance. Whether such activities are constitutional, most governors do have broad authority to invoke far-reaching emergency powers. Now, I've already discussed whether it's constitutional. Of course it is. You're not restricting interstate commerce, you're restricting interstate travel, which is two different things. Now, I know the Supreme Court has said they're one and the same. Back in the 1960s, they were wrong about that. They're not. But they're restricting interstate travel. I know that they're doing this in Delaware. It's completely legal to do this. People are starting to say, we don't want you from New York. New York, stay in New York. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. As some states maintain strict lockdowns while others reopen and allow COVID-19 to spread, such such border crossing restrictions could become more common and more important. Maryland has been stricter with pandemic control than has Virginia. So perhaps Maryland will deny or discourage entry from Virginia in metropolitan Washington. There are only a few bridges crossing the river that divides the two states. Or maybe Delaware won't be so keen to take in so many visitors from New Jersey, while Texas will want to discourage or block migration from Louisiana. Delaware already isn't taking in people from New Jersey and New York. State troopers are stopping them saying, go home. Even if you have a property here, you have to go home. We don't want you here. You're not from this state. These interstate divergencies and divisions would then matter all the more, as cross-state migration would be less likely to equalize outcomes. The federal government might try to persuade the states to act differently, or Congress might try to use federal aid to leverage state-level policy, or it might not. And it's easy to imagine Trump ignoring or even inflaming the issues so he has someone or some place to attack and blame. The best outcome may be, also the best bet, would be for this new federalism to end alongside the reign of panic driven by COVID-19. Still, is there not at least a small chance that the Federalist Compact will be written more permanently? It's already the case that California, Oregon, and Washington State have formed a pact to govern reopening and COVID-19 control, and there are similar compacts in the Northeast and the Midwest. What if states and cities enjoy their newfound autonomy on issues that matter? In that case, the pandemic might succeed in changing the very meaning of the term United States. Uh, Yeah, I mean, this is entirely possible. Regional government, this is what the agrarians were talking about in 1930. I think that that's a real situation. Governors are seizing the the moment and saying, all right, we have powers. We have the 10th Amendment. I mean, it's amazing to me that we're talking about this. AP was even citing the 10th Amendment. Are we in a bizarro world or what? Where the Associated Press even cites the 10th Amendment. Well, they're doing that because they don't like Trump. That's the real issue. They don't like Trump. Okay, well, before I get into the next article, and it's, it's a longer one, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get through it. I'm going to talk about what it says. I'm not going to go through the entire article. I want to take a quick break. I'll see you in just a minute. Let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan Academy. I know at the beginning of this particular podcast or this video, I talked about McClanahan Academy. But let me go into a little more detail about why I think you should sign up for it and why, and why I created it. First... A little bit about me. I have a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina, and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years. And I've seen college students get worse over time, the curriculum get worse, and students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that. 
And this is why I created the McClanahan Academy. Now, at first, it's always free to enroll at McClanahan Academy. You sign up. It's free. And I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do. But I've got eight courses for sale there and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum, and uh, my family has homeschooled all of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum, that's why I designed the United States History 18, to 1865 and 1865 to present. You've got enough material, you've got lesson plans, you've got uh, tests, you've got reading material, you've got reading seminars, you've got 36 weeks, if you take them, buy them both, you've got 36 weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school history curriculum, or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise. But it's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism and political correctness. So sign up at mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Again, always free to enroll, and I'll see you there. All right, we're back talking about new federalism, or as one author, this next author I'm going to talk about, new or neo-feudalism. So there's all kinds of dire predictions about what's going to happen to America, how this is going to work out, or what dystopian future are we in? Are we in store for? Is it going to be an economic collapse? Is it going to be, I mean, are we going to have Brave New World stuff? Are we going to have 1984? Which, pick your dystopian novel. Is it going to be The Handmaid's Tale? I mean, what's going to happen in America? Of course, the left sees everything as The Handmaid's Tale. Which dystopic vision for America are we going to get? Um, and this article, The Coming Age of Dispersion, it's interesting. Now, the author of the article is a man named Joel Kotkin. And Joel Kotkin is writing a new book entitled The Rise of Neo-Feudalism. The Rise of Neo-Feudalism. So in his mind, what we are facing in America and in the world, perhaps, is a new feudalistic order. His dystopian future is that all the wealthy people form these little independent communities, and all the others are forced to huddle in cities and starve to death, and of course be faced with massive pandemic problems and all kinds of things. That what's going to happen is the rich, and, and in some ways you could see warning signs of this. I mean, look, with the, with the bailout, who's getting the money? The people at the top, and they're becoming filthy, stinking rich on it still. Inflation is a major problem for people at the bottom. But what we are facing in America is a dual inflation-deflation crisis. I mean, when, when energy is, is sinking to where it is, that's deflationary. There's no money to pay people. There's no jobs to pay. Even though you have the inflation because we're printing so much money, that people aren't going to have any jobs. So even though prices are low and there's tons of money out there, nobody can get it except the people at the top. This is problematic. I mean, look, it, 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 there's real warning signs for the economy. And right now, we're still in the beginning phases of this. We've only gone through this month. But when you have unemployment, what it is, when states, see, a lot of people work on the, on the state system. I mean, they're, they're state employees or federal employees. 
The problem is there's not going to be as much tax revenue. So states are talking about, well, we might have to shut this down or shut that down because we have no revenue. I mean, where does... Now, the other... The other response to that, as the last piece talked about, could the federal government leverage this by saying, look, we'll give you cash, but you got to follow our, our orders. I mean, this is what you have to do. I think that's a real a real possibility. I mean, look, this, as I said, the state I live in is out of cash. So they could say, look, give us some cash so we can still pay our unemployed. But the federal government said, well, here's the strings. This is what Richard Nixon's federalism, new federalism was all about. Here's the cash, but you got to do these things, Right. So this particular piece at Quillette, which is uh, old, it's, it was published in March, um, talks about the end of the megacity. Are we seeing the end of the megacity? Are we seeing a situation like, say, Rome? <clears throat> and I say like Rome because what happened in the Roman Empire was interesting. I mean, th there's a reason why we had feudalism in Europe after the fall of Rome. You see, Rome became the symbol of the Roman Empire, of course. I mean, it was the, the center of it all. Had about a million people in it at any one time um, at, the, at the height of the empire. But it was the wealthy and then the squalid tenements around it. And not just that. When it fell, people fled the city for security. And you also had the barbarians, whether they were the Germans or later the Vikings, whatever it was, flooding into the empire and causing disruptions. You could say the coronavirus are these new barbarians at the gate. It is this, these new barbarians. It's, it's, it's the Vikings. It's forcing people into fear. And this is what drove people into feudal estates, fear, protection. The central authority broke down and had no, it had no ability to protect people anymore. In fact, it became destructive of that. The economy was in shambles. You had inflationary problems. You had all kinds of things going on in the empire. So I, I actually did a podcast on this a couple of years ago. We Are we Rome? Are we now Rome? And maybe this is going to speed the process of that. Now, in this particular argument, it's, this would actually be a good thing if we, if we get rid of these megacities and we just, as he said, disperse people over wi wide swaths of the United States. In other words, we suburbanize everything, we create little towns, little suburban enclaves with gardens and their own little economies all over the place. Now, that would actually be an interesting response to the problem, but it would take a tremendous amount of urban planning, and that's not happening. You see, you, you're relying on people to plan. Americans don't plan anymore. The reason that we're seeing such an economic problem to begin with right now is because Americans don't plan. And what I mean by they don't plan, well, they don't have any money set aside for a rainy day. They have no money to, to handle the situations that they're being confronted with. Nothing. They don't plan. And because they don't plan, this is why we have the problems that we do, because there is no planning going on whatsoever. Nothing. No planning. So, uh, when they don't even have $1,000 for emergency and they're relying on the general government. So this would take, I think, an amount of planning that it's just not going to happen. Structurally, it can't happen. But he's saying, look, the best outcome will be for a Frank, Frank Lord Lloyd Wright situation where, again, people have these little houses and they, they spread out into suburban regions. Um, and the the articles, like I said, it's a 20-minute read, and I, we don't have that kind of time on this particular podcast. 
Um, he's saying that there's there's several things that could work with this, and I'll read you some of the some of the sub points. Um, that uh, he gets into. He says, living in dispersion may not save you from contagion, but being away from people, driving around your own car, and having neighbors you know does have its advantages in times like these. Exactly. I mean, this is think locally, act locally. Even the urbanites have figured out, much as their Renaissance predecessors did during typhus and bubonic plague outbreaks, Wealthy New Yorkers today are retreating to their country homes where they struggle with the locals over depleted supplies and essentials. So he's saying, is it are we going back to the Dark Ages? Um, he says, cities in Europe and America had gradually cleaned up by the later parts of the 19th century. Urban reformers, sewer socialists, and social democratic governors across Europe improved sanitation and water delivery systems and expanded parks. Equally critical, Western cities began a conscious unbunching of the population through the introduction of streetcars, subways, passenger trains, and eventually freeways. Radicals and conservatives alike welcomed the British visionary Ebenezer Howard's Garden City ideal, which sought to offer the majority the option of resettling in the more hygienic hinterlands. Over the ensuing century, developers became adept at building cities, even in the tropics, but it seems clear that they have not been able to stop the revival of old, old hygiene problems. This is particularly true in China, which has undergone extraordinarily rapid urbanization. Behind the impressive settling of China's high-rise cities, many urban residents, particularly some of the 200 million migrant workers, live in overcrowded neighborhoods with poor sanitation and drinking water. Many of these workers, notes author Li Sun, work in dangerous jobs but have little or no access to health care. So this is where he's saying the megacity has to fade. Now, this is very Jeffersonian as well. I mean, this is not just planning. This is Jeffersonian in its response. Cities are filth. Cities are are festering sores on the face of humanity. They're, they are a, a blight. Highly problematic. One of the things we're doing in America right now is governing for New York or Los Angeles. We don't need to do that. He said, now, now, he says, even without government assistance, and often in the face of opposition from planners, dispersion has continued to characterize Western cities. The pattern is well established throughout Europe, Canada, and Australia, and is particularly evident in the United States, where since 2010, nearly all population growth has occurred in the urban periphery in smaller cities. As a new study from Heartland Forward demonstrates, both immigrants and millennials, the key groups behind urban growth, are increasingly moving to interior cities and even small towns. This is true even in San Francisco, where nearly half of the millennials describe themselves as likely to leave the city by the bay, a dramatic shift from a decade earlier due in large part to insanely high housing prices and deteriorating conditions on the streets. I mean, hallelujah. Indeed, as Richard Florida has noted, the bulk of the new growth of the creative class, the well-educated millennials critical to the urban renaissance, is shifting away from super city, superstar cities the rise in the migration of such prize workers is now two to three times faster in Salt Lake City, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, and Grand Rapids, Michigan, than in regions around New York, Los Angeles, or Washington, D.C. Now, he's saying that the part of this is the role of technology. 
Uh, and it's tech sector. It's technology that's making this possible, and we're seeing it. Why even have meetings anymore? Why go to a brick-and-mortar site when you just pull it up on your computer, have a Zoom meeting, and you don't have to be around each other anymore? You don't have to deal with the politics of anything. Nothing. I mean, think about workplace environment. Your home is your workplace environment. Now, are humans going to be comfortable with this long-term without human constant human interaction? Are we going to be comfortable with these things? Well, on the other hand, you're going to have your nuclear family. I think you could see more of that going on. Well, i got to have people living with me. So maybe it's going to be roommates or maybe it'll be a, a spouse or what, a, whatever the situation is. But maybe we're going to see more of that. I don't know. He's talking about telecommuting. He says, this will, this will not work for everyone, but thanks to COVID-19, this moment may have, may have arrived. Even before the pandemic, the benefits of working remotely were, remotely were apparent in terms of productivity, innovation, and lower turnover. It appears to be particularly attractive to seniors and educated millennials. These digital natives have already adapted, accepted the notion that they can accomplish as much as at home as in the office. As one student told me, I don't see the point of driving an hour to go from one computer screen to another. Exactly right. In the United States, some rural states in particular, Oklahoma to Vermont, Maine to Iowa, have developed incentive programs for telecommuters, including bonuses for moving and subsidies for establishing a business. These often include the option of living in an affordable small town or even a farmstead and still participating in the high end of the global economy, which is particularly appealing to experienced older workers as well as young families. Ultimately, the dispersed work model may also be used to combat climate change since working from home can save considerable energy, etc., etc. Now, he says, some jobs, notably those in hotels, airports, and theme parks, may disappear for violating new norms of social distancing. This opens a potential goldmine to firms such as Slack, now the fastest-growing business application on record, as well as Zoom, Skype, Google Hangouts, and Microsoft Teams, all of which manage real-time collaboration on documents, spreadsheets, presentations, and and conversations. Other clear winners include Amazon, the food delivery services, streaming entertainment services, telemedicine, and online education providers, like McClanahan Academy. Now, he says this could create neo-federalism. He says, is this a better new world? I'm going I'm to read his conclusion because it's interesting. And then we're almost out of time. In the future, cities may not be defined as physical places, but as what MIT's late futurist William Mitchell described as cities of bits. This is something that did not exist during the Middle Ages, when the most knowledgeable survived the, in the isolation of monasteries. New digital connections could incubate a new urban culture unlike any we have seen. As dispersion grows, our cities become flatter and less dense. Many primary functions, food service, media, businesses, and professional services, finance will operate mostly free of unwanted human contact. They will be less like the super high-density radiant city and far more like American architect Frank Lloyd's Wright's notion of a broader care city, an expanse of houses and gardens spreading spreading far and wide across the landscape. Mitchell predicted that these virtual cities could become heavily bifurcated with the wealthy clustered like the social isolated germophobic spacers described in Isaac Asimov's science fiction and hermetically sealed corporate campuses or around university, university districts. The rest of the population could end up living in small apartments, constantly worried about infection and living increasingly in virtual, virtual reality. Dispersion might offer a sunnier scenario with people spread out across different regions. Property would be far less expensive and accessible to the middle classes. Larger living spaces could be ideally configured from home-based work that would bring back the family-oriented capitalism of the early modern era. Rather than bringing us to a new 
to a high-tech Middle Ages, we could use the crisis to develop a new and more human economic and social model that combines a cosmopolitan outlook with a better and safer way of life. So, very Jeffersonian. This is a Jeff- this, could, this could lead to a Jeffersonian renaissance. How do we deal with COVID-19? How do we plan? What is the outlook going to be is the real question. The first article I read talks about Articles of Confederation. This is more about social, the, the, out, the social outcome of this. One is political, one is social. The real question is going to be economics. Is there going to be enough money to do any of these things? That's another question in and of itself. And how is government going to react to these things is another, is another issue. But as people are showing, the government is powerless if people just say enough. They're showing up at these rallies. I mean, they're not arresting anybody. They can't. They don't have the manpower to do it or the willpower in that way. That's going to be the real issue. You're going to have the authoritarians you have to deal with. But how does all this work? Is it going to be feudal estates? Is it going to be spread out? I mean, are we going to, are we, look, houses are bigger and bigger. You're going to have spaces for home offices. I mean, people can be at home. Homeschooling is now, I mean, it's taking off. People are realizing we don't need to be there for school anymore. We don't need to, we don't need these things. So what's the future going to be, I think, is the major question. And I think political decentralization is on the table. So is social decentralization. Very Jeffersonian. I think if you're listening to this podcast, you already know these things. I've been saying it for years now. Think locally, act locally. Socially, politically, economically, take care of you and yours first. And that's going to be the real real key for the future. All right. I've gone long on this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I will see you next time. <laughs>